Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. North Carolinians began casting ballots on October 17th at early voting sites across the state, and Election Day is next week. This year's election in North Carolina is being called a Blue Moon election because it's a rare cycle when there's no statewide race for governor or the U.S. Senate on the ballot. But every seat in the General Assembly is on the ballot, as well as a Supreme Court seat and six proposed amendments to the North Carolina Constitution. This week, we're joined by two respected journalists, Colin Campbell from The Insider and Jeff Tiberi, the Capitol Bureau Chief for WUNC Radio, to discuss the election and what it could mean for education policy and other key issues in North Carolina. Before we tackle our main topic, we open with headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. University of North Carolina Assistant President Margaret Spellings announced last week she is leaving her post less than three years after taking the helm of the state's public university system. Spellings, a former U.S. Secretary of Education under President George W. Bush, becomes the second head of UNC to depart after serving less than five years. Former UNC President Tom Ross was forced out by the Board of Governors in 2015. Now, while Spellings declined to give reasons for her departure, except to say, quote, that all leaders are here for a time, observers say a rocky relationship with the UNC Board of Governors and the legislative leaders who appoint the board is likely to blame. The terms of her departure include regular pay and a 77,000 retirement contribution through March 1st, plus a $500,000 separation payment. NC Promise, a new initiative to make college more accessible and help students avoid student loan debt here in North Carolina, seems to be working. The program set tuition at a flat $500 per semester for in-state students at three state universities, UNC Pembroke, Western Carolina University, and Elizabeth City State University. Since the program started this year, all three have seen immediate enrollment jumps of 14, 6, and 19 percent respectively. Readmits students who drop out and then re-enroll have seen even bigger jumps, most notably at UNC Pembroke, where there's been a 60% increase in its readmit population. Finally, the College Board released the latest national SAT scores, and the average score for North Carolina high school students was up 17 points. North Carolina's class of 2018 posted an average score of 1,098 on the SAT exam compared to 1,081 for the class of 2017. Our state average is now 30 points above the national average. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of the headlines as well as all the other topics we cover each week. As I mentioned at the top, early voting began two weeks ago, so while we don't know who they voted for, we do have a lot of data on what the voters look like so far in terms of race and party identification, and people like our guest today are already pouring over this information to see what they can learn. Jeff Tiberi. Jeff, you are the Bureau Chief, Capital Bureau Chief for WUNC, the NPR network station here. Colin Campbell, returning guest. Thanks, Colin, for being here. Editor of The Insider. So let's talk about the numbers first. Both of you have been looking at it. What, um, what are we seeing so far in this, mid, um, this sort of midterm uh, early voting um, that's standing out to you? Jeff? What we saw initially was just a spike. Uh, I mean, a surge of voters that initially, for the first 
few days, almost a week, was outpacing 2016. 2016 being a presidential election. I mean, this is when we see uh, the most, uh, the, the highest participation. You mentioned a blue moon a few moments ago. Last time North Carolina had a blue moon, uh, turnout was in the 36, 37 percent range. And uh, all indications right now are that despite not having that, that uh, Council of State race or U.S. Senate race, it's going to be well above that, mid-40s at least. And I think in certain pockets we might see north of 50, 55. Um, we're we're going to see very good voter turnout. Um, it, it's going to deviate a little bit across the state. But what we're seeing uh, it, it was a lot of voters, at least initially. Well, Colin, does it show anything? About, what about the uh, the party breakdowns? Is there is there a blue wave? Is there a is there a red wave? Is there what's going on? Yeah, that's the one. It's a little bit difficult to tell because obviously you have uh, the party broken down by registration. Uh, so what we're seeing is uh, a lot of Democrats coming out, as you would expect, uh, based on everything we've heard this year. Uh, a lot of you know. Uh, presumably motivated by anger about national politics and things like that. Uh, but you're also seeing a remarkably strong Republican turnout. The uh, predictions that Republicans were not going to be that interested in this election and uh, might not show up, which would lead to a bigger uh, blue wave effect, uh, doesn't seem to have come true. They're turning out in numbers similar to what we've seen uh, in the past. There has been a spike in the number of uh, percentage of unaffiliated voters coming out. And that's where things get a little bit murky, because we don't know uh, whether those folks are breaking for Republicans or for Democrats. Democrats, and I think that's ultimately what ends up deciding the uh, results of this and election. And that's where most new rep, most uh, people who are newly registered voters are mm -hmm. tending to, to register independent now, Yeah, right? second biggest uh, registration in the state now. Right. So, all right. Well, we, uh, money might be one of the reasons, <laughs> right, um, that, that, we've, that people, that sort of awareness now, folks may be excited the election is uh, next week so they don't have sure. to see anymore. What kind of dollars are we talking about, guys? Um, we're talking about huge sums of money. One other just quick note that, I, that just bubbled into my head about early voting, which is, uh, we've already seen more early voters in, in 18 than we did in 14, which was the last midterm, which is a sign, again, okay. of, of higher turnout. Sure. As for that money, uh, post-Citizens United World, we have seen just a proliferation of, of campaign donations, campaign expenditures, because, of course, organizations, uh, third-party organizations, can now make unlimited and anonymous contributions. And uh, I, for, I don't know the best way to do the context of this. I, I showed this with Colin yesterday. We were having a, a conversation at the legislature. I spoke to a, a state lawmaker who was first elected in 1970. Uh, and he ran, he raised about $1,300. Uh, so for context, uh, I've had a couple people tell me that they expect all told this election cycle there to be about 25 of the 120 state house races where both major party candidates will raise and spend uh, in the six figures. Uh, and in Mecklenburg, we actually have a million dollar race in the House. And remember, the House races are, are smaller, of course, geographically. Right. On the Senate side, we've seen some million dollar races before, Chad Barefoot being, being one. I think that was the first million dollar race in Wake County. And we're going to see multiple million dollar races uh, in the Senate. So the, the money is, is is very significant. All right, well, let's talk about, I want to shift a little bit into the policy things. We've got six constitutional amendments on the ballot. Um, you know, from an education perspective, there has been some um, attention uh, paid to the tax cap amendment, but then, of course, we also talk about some things that are unprecedented. We've got every um, uh, living governor, Republicans and Democrats, have been coming out and campaigning against at least two of the constitutional amendments. What, um, what are those uh, sort of polls and sort of what are you seeing out there, Colin? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting because um, 
all the constitutional amendments have sort of uh, gone into a single bucket for both of the political parties. The Republican Party is urging people to vote for all six. The Democratic Party urging people to vote against all six. Um, but the polling is showing a little bit differently. I think the latest uh, polls that came out this week uh, are showing uh, support, uh, particularly for the Victims' Rights uh, Amendment, which of course had a big advertising push behind it, um, as well as the uh, Right to Hunt and Fish Amendment. Uh, decent amount of support for the uh, Voter ID Amendment. Um, but then the less popular ones are the ones that are not surprisingly more confusing to voters if they're just reading the ballot question, the things involving the governor's powers over judicial vacancies and the election board. Those may be the ones that are more likely to fail than the others. Um, and the big wild card, I think, is going to be the income tax cap, which, of course, is the one with implications for uh, education funding going forward. Jeff, you've been out of the General Assembly, and you've covered these things. I mean, is it unusual? These constitutional amendments basically have no enabling legislation <laughs> behind them. Uh, here's a loaded question. Well, I know. Well, it is loaded, <laughs> but, but, but right. I mean, but because it's part of, we're going to get right. to the General Assembly in a minute, the part of the fact that it is controlled a supermajority by the Republicans, right. they, they can decide how they do these things. A lot of these amendments are going to be voted on, and then two weeks after the election, the General Assembly has already set a, a session to come back in and, and then tell us what we voted for. Right, that <laughs> implementing language. I think to some extent there is some concern, some some reasonable concern over whether or not voters are giving the legislature a blank check here, right? So the constitutional amendment to require a photo identification, piece of photo identification to vote. Okay. Uh, I mean, national polls show that Americans do support that. But what will be the details of that? What kinds of uh, identification will be allowed, permissible? And then for folks that don't have it, I think the last check by the, the State Board of Elections a couple of years ago estimated about 300,000 people don't have state identifications. Uh, how do you get, if you get those people, identification? Uh, so the implementing language is, is key. It's paramount to, to all of this. Uh, and I think that if you want to take it a step further, depending on what happens with some of this implementing language, if these constitutional amendments pass, very likely to, to bring about legal challenges. Right. Um, I want to, we're going to get into the, in our second segment with you, you're going to be here for both, uh, about sort of what might change. But let me ask you, Con, real quick. Donald Trump is obviously the national story um, in every campaign, it seems. But North Carolina, I mean, education is pretty big. I mean, this is, you know, uh, certainly based on commercials and direct mails, I mean, education seems to be showing up a lot. Is that, does that seem, uh, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say the top two issues um, in these uh, state campaigns are education and health care, uh, with the exception, obviously, of the campaigns that have tried to nationalize their campaign. And, and you have seen a few state senators running ads about immigration, which, of course, is something they have very little power over. But in terms of what voters are talking about, when you do the polling, when you go out and talk to voters, they're looking at education spending levels. They're looking at health care policy. Uh, and those seem to be really driving people. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we get back, I want to get into with both of you sort of what, if, if there are changes in the legislature anyway, sort of how that might affect some of the policy issues we cover. But So we're going to continue that conversation. We come back with Colin Campbell and Jeff Tiberi. But before we go to break, see if you can answer this question. The Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court is chosen by the General Assembly from among the six associate justices on the court. Is that true or false? Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Paragon Bank, serving others, enriching lives. Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer false? The Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court is actually elected by voters to serve in that capacity for a full eight-year term. 
North Carolina is one of only seven states in which the Chief Justice is elected by voters. We're going to continue our discussion about the midterms with Colin Campbell from The Insider and Jeff Tabiri from WNC. All right, we started talking about Donald Trump and education, so I want to, we're going to shift from Donald Trump and go into education. Um, obviously, Democrats um, um, who are in the, the, the very much in the minority in the General Assembly, the Republicans have enjoyed a supermajority now since 2012, mm -hmm. um, they'd like to take over both chambers, but certainly they'll tell you that their goal is at least to break the supermajority. So what does that, I guess first explain to our view, what does that mean, Jeff? Let me ask you, what would that mean sure. if, Dem if Republicans no longer enjoyed a supermajority but still control both chambers? Effectively, it gives the governor a much more prominent seat at the table. He or she, he of course, Roy Cooper in this case, uh, can, can ask for much more, can leverage for much more uh, as they, they sit down to bargain, whether that's about the state budget or Medicaid or whatever the policy issue may be. Uh, a supermajority effectively means that legislature passes something by most things, by simple majority. It goes to the executive mansion. If, if the governor, whether it was Purdue or McCrory or now Cooper, if they veto it and it comes back to the legislature, legislature uh, has a three-fifths requirement. Some States, it's two-thirds, so it's actually a little bit lower here, three-fifths requirement to overrule that veto. And if we think about what's happened in the last few years, I think Purdue had, early on, she had, a, I think it was a 19, uh, 11 out of 19 pieces of legislation were, over, um, were, were, were overruled. And then uh, with Cooper, I think he's vetoed 25 now uh, pieces of legislation, and 20 of those have come back to the legislature, um, and they have overridden him on 20 of those. So if they don't have that anymore, the Republicans are going to either have to play nice with Democrats at the legislature, work with them uh, to build some consensus, uh, or just not pass legislation that the governor is going to, going to axe, so to speak. Right. So that's, yeah, because like you said, the vetoes largely become symbolic and almost political for a little bit, so I'm, I'm going to make a statement on it, but it's it's not going to, but so let's look at like, like education, for example. In fact, I remember um, Governor Purdue, this was one of the things that like she went to the mat on some things around education funding. If, if you don't do this, I'm going to do that. So that's the kind of trading you might see where Democrats could say, all right, you're, you know you're going to pass your budget, but if, if we get some more investment in teacher pay or in school resources, then it might give them, the Republicans, a little comfort that they either wouldn't be a veto at all uh, or that they could override one? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to have a lot of compromise on the front end to try to avoid uh, the veto scenario because if you end up uh, getting well into next July with no budget, um, that could be a big problem for state government. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot more leverage in terms of the amount of education funding, the level of the teacher pay raises, as well as some of the more hot-button education issues like do we spend more on private school voucher programs? Uh, what does the funding picture for charter schools look like? Those are all uh, things where we may see more compromise as opposed to uh, just the Republicans passing their agenda and there being no way for Democrats to stop it. And I mentioned, Jeff, I'll ask you because I mm -hmm. mentioned, I was talking to Colin about education. It does seem, and that is a pretty, I mean, and it makes sense here in North Carolina because the General Assembly has so much control over Absolutely. education. Right. I mean, I live here in Wake County. All the candidates, Republicans and Democrats, mm -hmm. are running as education champions. Absolutely. This is uh, health care and, I mean, we, we've heard a lot about immigration, but education is so central to state politics and to the candidacies of so many of these these, uh, these folks running for state house and state senate. It's more than 55% of the state budget um, goes toward education funding. So uh, we, we've seen all sorts of campaign mailers and attack ads on television. I think a little bit more nuanced, we've also seen, uh, I'll speak to one 
one house race in Wake County, the, the Joe John Marilyn Avila race. And this was a very close race two years ago. John unseated Avila. Now Avila is coming back to try to uh, get her, her old seat back, so to speak. Uh, and she has sent out some mailers attacking him for not supporting school safety. Um, and, you know, this was something that the legislature uh, kind of diverted toward uh, last, uh, last winter following the Parkland shooting in Florida, right. um, trying to bolster funding for school resource officers and for mental health programs. Um, it was not something John supported, and now she's trying to attack him on that. So we have all sorts of educational funding issues. Uh, let's talk about uh, something that looms large for education, Supreme Court. Um, I mean, one of the several things that the General Assembly has done in the last few years have been ruled on. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe you know this. But several laws were overturned, including some on education. I know, like career status and, and various things. It looks like um, you know, Anita Earl, certainly based on the polling, the, 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 the Democrat Anita Earls is, 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 is likely to be elected next week. Yeah, I mean, all the signs are pointing in her favor. Of course, the, the big advantage she has is that the uh, Republicans canceled the primary, uh, so we now have two people who will appear as a Republican on the ballot, uh, which is going to siphon votes away from the incumbent Republican Justice Barbara Jackson. Uh, Earls has also raised a ton of money. I think she's over a million dollars in her Supreme Court campaign, which is uh, maybe unprecedented for a Supreme Court race. But the upshot of that um, is we already have a four to three majority of Democrats on the uh, court. If she wins, that becomes five to two, and it's going to stay that way through 2022. So regardless of who's in charge of the legislature, when a Republican uh, law comes before the Supreme Court, the odds that it gets overturned are certainly increased by an Earl's win. Right, exactly. Um, I mentioned in my headlines, let's, I'm going to mm -hmm. go, get one more thing in sure. uh, topic, Margaret Spellings. Mm -hmm. Um, big news, big name, national name. This was in, I mean, it was in the Wall Street Journal, yeah, the Chronicle Herald last week. This is a very political position, certainly now. I mm -hmm. mean, maybe it always has been. I mean, I grew up here, but it's you know certainly you know Tom Ross was was mm -hmm. forced out, uh, Spellings, uh, a Bush Republican mm -hmm. from Texas, but apparently not to the liking of some of the, the Board of Governors who were 100% appointed by the legislature. Right. This is a hyper-partisan moment. The, 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 the divide is, is just is growing, is widening, and I think that as we've seen at the legislature in recent years, as Republicans took over in 10, had the uh, strengthened with supermajorities in 12, it's been a, we, we talk about it collectively as a heavy lift because they hadn't been in charge of state government since Reconstruction. And at the same time, they, they hadn't been able to, to have this kind of uh, control, influence, whatever word you want to use, over the UNC Board of Governors. So we've seen uh, a much more uh, political push. We've seen many more conservative people on the UNC Board of Governors. And it's interesting that Margaret Spellings, who you know was uh, a, you know, a key member of, of George W. Bush's cabinet, is not conservative enough for the many of the leaders in this state right now. So I think we're going to see a push even further to the right as we think about the UNC Board of Governors in, in 2019. Which, would, which, again, whoever's in charge of the General Assembly appoints the Board of Governors. So you know, that's another thing that might drive it. Certainly, I mean, I don't know if that's a vote driving thing, but voters should be aware that the decision for the head of the UNC system is, is chosen by those members. Yeah, and the Republicans will probably stay in charge of the board for at least the next year or so, even if Democrats had a really good year this year. Uh, but you could see the sw pendulum swing back the other way a little bit further down the road when some new appointments are made and perhaps uh, gets a little bit less conservative. All right, quick, we got, we got a minute left. I want to get some quick, if you're where you're comfortable, sure. quick predictions along someone, get you on film. Do you think that, uh, so what do you think Democrats are going to do in the General Assembly? You think they are going to take either chamber or break the supermajority, Colin? I think they may be able to break the supermajority, particularly in the House. Um, I think it would be a really, really long shot for them to take the majority. 
What about the constitutional amendments? What do you think? That's been kind of a, historically, they all pass when they get on the ballot. H historically, since this Constitution has been ratified, I think it's like 83% of amendments have, have been approved. Um, my gut still says that, that all six will, will, will get through, maybe a couple with pretty thin margins. Um, but it is interesting as we think about those executive power constitutional amendments. Um, the governors have spoken out against them. Americans for Prosperity has, have spoken ag out against them. So uh, perhaps those are, are uh, in a little bit of trouble. Great. Thanks so much. Good Thanks. insights, great Thanks conversation, and good seeing both of you. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight the LEAP program in High Point. Leadership Spotlight is brought to you by Participate, where we believe every student deserves equitable access to quality education. LEAP stands for Literacy Empowers All People and we firmly believe that literacy is a ladder out of poverty. We started about five years ago with one child just to help one child that was struggling with their homework. And now we've grown to serve over 400 children. I was the first student that came into LEAP. I have an immigrant family. Um, I'm, I'm a first generation college student. So coming here to America, we moved here in 2011 and I barely started high school. And I was still adapting at that time to the different environment, you know, still to the language. The local school superintendent heard about our program because it was growing so much with so many parents bringing their children. So he asked us to come in and bring the program directly into the school system. We work with children from the very beginning all the way through finishing school. We want them to graduate on time, but we also help them get prepared for college. I am in pharmacy school, and so I try to come back and, you know, give my time out. And I'm very grateful that I can be served as a role model for these kids so that they can look up to me and think that if I can go to a good university, so, they, so can they. What we also do is we have a mentoring program for the kids. It's called Boys to Men and Girls to Ladies. We have children who are so excited to come and, and just to have that one-on-one -on -one interaction with someone who you know, cares about them. These kids are coming from low-income, you know, poverty-stricken communities. If you have a child that has not eaten breakfast in the morning, how is that child going to function all day? They get lunch and breakfast, and they get uh, snacks in the middle of the day, and then once a week, they get um, a backpack full of uh, snacks and, and food that they can, uh, their family can sustain with for the rest of the week. If there's any after-school program in the community, you know, these are not just ordinary programs. These are programs that are helping to bring a change in our community and that are helping our youth becoming the next generational leaders of our community. If it wasn't for the LEAP program, I would not have been where I am today. They provided me with a lot of opportunities that I'll forever be grateful for. If you know someone or a great program that deserves to be recognized, please visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. Election Day is almost here. 
Based on early voting anyway, turnout seems to be higher this year than in a typical midterm election, particularly a blue moon election year where there's usually even lower turnout. Current early voting rates actually look like a presidential election year than a midterm. So what's driving it? President Donald Trump dominates the national political conversation and seemingly every conversation these days. But is that the case here in North Carolina? Here, much of the political activity has swirled around the General Assembly and the supermajority status enjoyed by Republicans. Put it this way, 20,000 teachers didn't descend on Raleigh in May to protest Donald Trump. According to the National Education Association, there are an unprecedented 550 current and, and retired educators running for state house and senate seats in 2018, including several here in North Carolina. As we discussed on today's show, and as we do nearly every week, if you care about education in public schools, you really have to pay attention to the North Carolina General Assembly. Local school boards and county commissions matter, of course, but it's the state, not local government, that has the primary responsibility based on our state constitution to maintain a system of quality public schools. They decide how teachers are paid and how our schools are funded. So we encourage all our viewers to get informed and vote. I also hope that the increased civic engagement of teachers carries over into higher voter turnout among educators. We need their voice in the process regardless of who they support. At the Public School Forum, we believe education policy is always better when educators are involved. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.